If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and if you're new with us, what we typically do is work our way through books of the Bible about 90 plus percent of the time. If you come here, we'll be working our way through a book of the Bible, kind of section by section. But what we've been doing over the last uh, few weeks is kind of lingering in the last week of Jesus' life, and we're doing that in part because that's what the gospel writers do. Um, There are four uh, writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're sometimes called the evangelists because they, they bear witness to the person and the life and the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. Well, with those four Gospel writers, they devote the bulk of their time, their writing, on the last week of Jesus' life. In Matthew and Luke's Gospels, uh, nearly a third uh, devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. In John's Gospel, more than half of it, again, focused on the last week of Jesus' life. And so, Uh, That's what we're doing in this series called Face Turned to the Cross. Most biographies, if you you like biographies, I'm currently reading through uh, one on Francis Schaeffer, the great minister, theologian, and apologist. And in that biography, you know, it has eight chapters or sections, and each one, the first one starts with kind of the early years, the childhood years, and the next one to uh, his years studying at various institutions, and then uh, progresses to married life and so on. And most biographies kind of tell the story of a person's life in equal segments. But if you go to the Gospels with that mindset or, or looking for that, you'll be sorely disappointed as you see that the Gospel writers really hurry toward the last week in Jesus' life. And they do that because what happened on the last week of Jesus' life really represents the reason that Jesus came to the earth to begin with. He came to suffer. He came to be crucified. He came to be raised again. And so we've spent the last few weeks looking, we spent one Sunday looking at what happened on Monday of that last week, and then a Sunday looking at what happened on Tuesday of that last week. And this morning, I want to look at what happened on Thursday of the last week of Jesus' life. You, maybe you've heard it referred to as Maundy Thursday. Anybody heard this? Well, it's, a la- it's, it's kind of an abbreviation of the Latin word manditum, which means mandate. Uh, it's a reference to the, the, the command, the mandate that Jesus gave during the Last Supper, where he says, a new command I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Uh, that's what, again, the, the command that Jesus gave during the Last Supper. What I want to do today, though, is I want to focus on what happened after the Last Supper, immediately after the Last Supper. There's, there's a fascinating rhythm we see in Scripture where um, meals uh, tend to mark something significant that happened in uh, the life of God's people. And really, it's the same with us, really. I mean, you know, uh, there's something about sharing a meal with someone that kind of strengthens the bond of a relationship and maybe uh, even more happens than is communicated We can argue that it's actually a God-given impulse to to mark significant moments in our lives by the meals that correspond to them. For example, I'll never forget the meal at which uh, Janine officially introduced me to her parents for the first time. It was unforgettable for a whole bunch of reasons, most of which I won't get into this morning. But one of the things that really stood out to me, so Janine's dad uh, at the time, he was an FBI agent, special agent, 6'7", used to busting down doors and apprehending perps. And uh, here I was, a 19-year-old kid who showed up for this introduction in my MC Hammer pants, literally. Now, if you're, you, some of you may not remember this, but if you, if you Google this, uh, you'll see this is not the most flattering uh, sort of attire to meet 
uh, your your prospective uh, parents-in-law. But um, it was a very it was an un, it was a very eventful and unforgettable meal. Um, and you might think of other meals like that in your life. Maybe uh, the meal where you told the rest of your family that you were expecting your first child. You'll never forget that. Or maybe it was a lunch where you remember being extended your first real job offer. And that's not going to leave your mind uh, forever. Uh, Or maybe it was a a meal where uh, your family told you, your mom and dad told you that you're you're moving. Your whole family is moving to another state. and, And you'll remember the looks on the faces when you enjoyed that meal. Well, the scriptures, again, there's a significance, a real significance to table fellowship in the scriptures. This is why even secular counselors will advise parents to set aside that time around a meal to be with uh, their children. A meal facilitates bonding, and this is particularly the way Jewish festival meals played out. There was an order to them, there was a tradition, there was a sense of remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Uh, Well, the Last Supper was a meal that Jesus used to communicate clearly some very powerful gospel concepts. And I was actually going to preach on the Last Supper, but since we're not taking communion today, but we are on Good Friday, I decided to look at, again, what happens immediately after the, the, uh, the Last Supper, because there's this fascinating exchange which gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus that will absolutely change us if we can see it. So uh, let's look at, we'll be covering verses 30 through 35 this morning of Matthew 26. Let me start by reading verses 30 through 32. Here reads the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I want to pause there because Jesus and his disciples have just had this, enjoyed this very intimate, very special meal. And it was characterized, it was really a high point in their lives, except if you're Judas. It was at that meal that Jesus would tell Judas that he was the one who would betray him. But for the rest of the disciples, uh, Jesus reiterates and demonstrates his love for them. And he tells them in this meal that they will enjoy a new feast with him in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God forever, where they will never have to worry about uh, being separated again. So, so this, is a, this is a very important meal, of course, in, in the life of the disciples of Jesus um, it's, they celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from uh, slavery to the Egyptians. And, and again, in that meal that Jesus, Jesus promises uh, that the disciples, they'll be with him in his Father's kingdom. And then they have this great moment after the dinner is over. They, they sing a hymn together, uh, pr- most likely out of the Psalter, probably uh, one of the so-called Hillel Psalms, which we have in our uh, Bible. They appear between Psalm uh, 113 and 118. And so they sing this this psalm together, this beautiful moment. If you've ever been in a small room where everyone is just belting out uh, songs in worship, it's very powerful. I've had more than one occasion where I've experienced this in, in cross-culturally where I've, it's been very difficult even to hold back tears. I was in a little village in South Africa once gathered where the church was gathered on the Lord's Day, and I was preaching there. But, but 
before that, we, we sang songs together in worship. And for many of the families there, they had just in the last six months buried their own children who had died because of the age virus. And, and yet they, they worshiped God so powerfully and so humbly and with such great anticipation. It was just an amazing thing. Well, the disciples have to be on a real high here. Um, except for Judas, of course, but they're headed to the Mount of Olives. And even though the situation would have been weighty, again, they're, they're kind of walking on cloud nine here, enjoying this very intimate emotional experience with Jesus. We're going to feast with Jesus in the Father's kingdom. That had to be just uh, resonating with him, running through their minds. And then Jesus drops some really, really bad news in the midst of this great moment. He says to them in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me. One theologian writes, no sooner had the disciples sung triumphantly of the Lord's victories in the Passover Hallel than Jesus must break the mood with his prediction of their catastrophe. Jesus says to them, in essence, you're celebrating me now and you are rejoicing in my presence now. But this won't last long. Very soon, very shortly, you will all fall away. Now, I don't really like this translation here where it says you will fall away. I mean, it's not inaccurate. It is accurate. Um, But to fall away sounds like, you know, you kind of get lost. Maybe you you, you lose track of where everyone else is or you get sidetracked or you wander off the trail. But what the disciples do is actually more active than that. Um, it's, it's a long Greek word, uh, but it's, it's from the Greek word scandalon, which means to be scandalized by. And what Jesus says is, you will be scandalized by me, and because of that, you will desert me. You will abandon me. It's not as though they just kind of get lost in the crowd, lose directions, or get stuck in the restroom line when Jesus is being uh, beaten and crucified. They willfully and actively determine that they want no part of Jesus. You will be scandalized, verse 31, because of me, Jesus says. In other words, when Jesus is is arrested and he is uh, beaten and crucified, and that apparent defeat will actually repel the disciples away from Jesus. They're ashamed to be associated with Jesus. They don't want anyone to know that they know this carpenter from Nazareth. And it won't happen eventually, Jesus says. It will happen this very night. Now, just in case we or or they uh, start to think that this is some surprising development that no one had ever anticipated, that not even God knew about, Jesus says in verse 31 that this is actually a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Jesus says, for it is written... And then he quotes Zechariah 13.7, which was written over a thousand years before this took place, which, uh, where the prophet says that the, you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. To say it is written is to say that all this took place in the precise manner and in the exact way that was divinely foreordained by God. So a billion years, even more than that, Before Jesus came to the earth, God had already ordained every detail and event of his life, which is how God's sovereignty works. So here's our first point this morning if you're taking notes. 
God is sovereign over every act that transpires throughout all of history. Even evil acts committed against God's Son. Now we talk about God's sovereignty a lot around here because God's sovereignty shows up in the Scriptures all the time. It's not a New Testament concept. It's, it, it's throughout the whole of Scripture. God is sovereign. But sometimes we, we tend to believe, we might believe that, that God's sovereignty only includes kind of the good things that happen and not the bad things. That the bad things are in some way outside of God's sovereignty, maybe random, inexplicable events that not even God knows about. But the Bible, the Scriptures will not allow for that understanding. In fact, it's very clear what Jesus says here, even in this very passage. He says, you're all going to deny me in the very way that God has determined all along, right? As it is written. But that doesn't mean that God is culpable for your evil deed. You will leave me on your own accord. This is, this is you know, we're wading in some deep waters here when you talk about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But this is so rich. The denial of Jesus by his disciples is part of God's sovereign plan, but the responsibility for denying Jesus is on those who deny him. In the same way, the whole crucifixion event is part of God's sovereign plan. And yet, culpability, responsibility for the murder of Jesus belongs to the ones who crucified him. Paul says this very clearly. We, we spent months and months looking at, at the book of Acts. He says this, the second chapter of Acts. He says, uh, he looks out and says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, a reference to God's complete sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we say, yeah, God is sovereign over everything. Ephesians 1, that God's working out everything, all things accordance in accordance with his infinitely wise will. Romans 8 says that God works all things, right, for the good of those who love and those who are called according to his purpose. Proverbs 21, even the king's hand, heart is in the hand of the Lord. He, he directs it like a river. We see this all throughout the scripture. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples. He says, I want you to know all these bad things are going to happen to you. But he says, not even a bird falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. So all of it is included in God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over all of it. Nothing happens outside of God's plan, not even evil. Now, this is actually meant to comfort us. There's nothing in your life that is random. Nothing. There's nothing in your life that you can ever chalk up to just bad luck. Just something bad that happened to you that surprised God or was outside of His sovereign plan. Even the evil committed against you is not happenstance, it's not pointless, it's not random. It is all part of God's infinitely wise plan by which He governs the universe and everything in it in order to bring glory to His name and good to His children. Now some people ask, well, if God is sovereign, then why are we responsible? Or if God has ordained whatsoever shall come to pass, then why are we held accountable for what we do? And the answer is, yes, God is sovereign. And even the decree of evil has a place in His divine plan so that no evil deed, no deed of any kind happens apart from His sovereign will. But that doesn't make God culpable for the evil that takes place in the world because God doesn't commit 
any evil act, nor is there any darkness in him, nor is there any evil in him. Even though evil fits in God's divine plan, those who do evil do so of their own accord. Those who do evil do exactly what they want to do. Exactly what they want to do. They're not coerced or forced in any way. And in that sense, they do so freely. Now, the disciples, they denied Jesus. They were ashamed of him. They were scandalized by him and didn't want to be associated with him. That's exactly what they wanted to do. But at the same time, their denial was, was actually mysteriously, in a way, of course, we're never going to fully understand, part of God's divine plan. Remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is this brash, sort of overconfident man that his uh, brothers can, can't stand, really. And so they devise a plot to, d- to destroy him, and they throw him into a pit. He's sold into slavery, a life of slavery in Egypt. Uh, but through that experience, Joseph's uh, character is strengthened, his faith uh, is strengthened, and his resolve is fortified. He becomes a different man of an- who would eventually become the prime minister uh, of Egypt and save thousands of people from starvation, including his own family. And how does Joseph reflect on that as he's thinking back on all that he's gone through, including the, the horrible treatment by his own family? How does he think about that? He says in this very powerful uh, phrase that has been a comfort for believers for centuries, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's a beautiful description of everything that happens in the life of the believer. So what does Jesus do? Let's move on. What does Jesus do when, when he is abandoned? Look at verse 32 again. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says, you're going to reject me. You're all going to fall away. You're all going to be ashamed of me. You're going to be duped into believing that after all you've seen from me and all you've heard from me, that I'm not really who I said I am, that I'm really too good to be true. But then he says, but don't worry, I will wait for you. After I am raised from the dead, I will meet you in Galilee, and there I will restore you to me. This is so beautiful. The juxtaposition of these two phrases as Matthew includes it in his gospel, is very intentional. First, Jesus says, you will all forsake me. You will all abandon me. And then Jesus says, but I will be there for you. To those who've absolutely made a meal of it, these 12 disciples, now it hasn't happened yet, but it will very shortly, Jesus promises to restore them. They will disown him, but he will not disown them. They will deny him, but he will not deny them. They will be ashamed of him, but he will not be ashamed of them. Their scattering will be reversed. He will gather them up up to himself. And I love the way Calvin comments on this. He says, Christ is not simply saying that he will rise again, although certainly that would be enough, but declares that he will be their leader again, and he will take them up again as companions. Now think of how these disciples must have felt when they see Jesus' body taken from the cross. They had to feel so much self-loathing and humiliation and shame, and they had to ask themselves, I'm sure a thousand times, how could I do this to him? How could I possibly do this to the one who was everything to me? Well, it would have been their comfort after such a horrifying display of disloyalty 
to have these words ringing in their ears like a bullhorn. I will be there for you again after I am raised from the dead. It certainly shows us something of the mercy of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus. There's a pattern that we see in the scriptures, and it's so rich, it's so beautiful. Just when it seems like Jesus will most certainly write someone off, or at least he should write someone off, just when it seems like Jesus should surely turn his back on someone, what does he do? There's a phrase that appears over and over the Gospels. Jesus came near to them. And this is more than, it's about more than just proximity. It's a statement about the tenderness of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus. Uh, Dane Ortland, in his book Deeper, writes, What is this love of Christ? Niceness? Certainly not. This is the Christ who took the time to make a whip and then used it to drive the money changers from the temple, flipping over tables. Is it a refusal to judge people? By no means. Scripture speaks of his judgment like a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The love of Christ is his settled, unflappable heart of affection for sinners and sufferers and only sinners and sufferers. And Jesus' love hasn't changed, has it? The writer of Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, he has a settled disposition toward you, and it is one of constant, unchanging, and faithful love. Here's our second point. Despite our spectacular failures and secret sins, Jesus' promise and pattern is to draw near to us, not pull away. You know we have this, this sense, now let me speak for myself, I have this sense when I fail Jesus the same way yet again, or when I, I sin in a way that I've already repented of a million times. I have this sense that there's got to be that moment when Jesus is like, okay, you know, enough is enough. I have forgiven you so many times, and here you are on your knees asking forgiveness for the same thing again. You know, we have the sense that there's got to be a limit. <laughs> there's got to be a limit to the love of Jesus. Right? It can only go so far, right? And yet, what do we see in the Gospels over and over and over again? Jesus doesn't turn his back. He doesn't slowly slink away from us in uh, embarrassment of us. He's not standing there with his arms crossed, showing us how disappointed he is in us. He's actually leaning in. Drawing near, coming closer, reassuring us of his love and commitment to us. Now look at verses 33 through 35. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you. I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Peter, as you may know, was the leader of the disciples. Uh, he was part of the inner circle. He was the one that uh, you know, was quick to take charge. He was the most courageous. Uh, he was the most outspoken of the twelve. But we could also argue he was the most flawed of the twelve. Except for Judas, the most flawed of the eleven, I guess I should say. Peter was passionate, which was a good thing, but he was impetuous, he was impulsive, he was certainly not a great listener, 
He was very quick to talk and say things, but he wasn't a very good listener. He's got a lot of issues, but being slow to speak was not one of them. If we were to summarize Peter's error in this exchange, we might boil it down to three things. And I'm not huge on alliteration, as you may know, but I couldn't resist on this one. Here's what I think we would characterize Peter's mistake. It was condescension toward other believers. That was the first part of it. Confidence in his own abilities and confusion as to the foundation of the Christian faith. Now, let me explain. First of all, condescension toward other believers. When Jesus tells uh, the disciples they will all fall away, Peter says, not me. I mean, these guys, yeah, these guys, they'll fall away, but not me. And I'm sure the other guys are like, why do you got to do that? I mean, what, 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 just leave us out of this. But he says, no, I, yeah, I, no, I know, Jesus. Yeah, these guys, yeah, I know, I know about these guys, but I will never fall away. Peter has this condescending view toward the other believers. And I think it's an area that we all fail in all the time. We tend to think way less of ourselves or others rather than we do of ourselves. We're really quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but not so quick with others. It's why virtually every public apology by every celebrity goes something like this. This is not who I really am. I'm not really that person. But they are that person. And so are we. When we sin against someone else and hurt them, we, we might as well dispense with the notion that that's not really who I am and just say, yeah, I'm sorry. This is totally on me. I have wronged you and I'm sorry. The way I sinned against you just reveals how much I need Jesus. But we would prefer, like Peter, to view ourselves higher and others lower. Or we tend to reduce other people in our minds to the most frustrating thing about them. Have anybody in your life that when you think about them, the only thing that comes to mind is what really drives you crazy about them? I had to say to my own uh, 16-year-old daughter who told me recently about someone in her theater group, she wanted to punch her in the face. I said, whoa, whoa, slow down. That's not the way we do things here. She wasn't really going to do it, but she, I, she was very upset. I'm very reluctant to share this illustration because it, it, it makes me look terrible, but it does drive home the point. Uh, when Janine and I were first married, the first year and a half, couple of years, we, uh, we had this thing that, that came to be known uh, infamously as the, the bathroom talks. And what this was is we would be, you know, we were, we were both 22, we'd be out somewhere at a social gathering or party, and Janine would say something that wasn't exactly the way that I would say it. And so we kind of secretly, privately motion for, hey, meet me, uh, meet me in the bathroom. And we'd go in the bathroom, and I would very carefully explain to her, you know, some of the better ways she could have said this. You know, if you would have said it this way, or I really wouldn't have done that. Um, uh, now if I say, you know, meet me in the bathroom, she says, you go there by yourself. Um, uh, you figure it out on your own. Um, but there was a period in our first couple, and I, yeah, I was a jerk. I, mean, I was a jerk. I'm, that, there's no doubt. I just, I wanted to fashion her into a little image of me so that she would say the things that I would say, do the things that I would do. And what happened during that, those, those early years is I, what I failed to realize and recognize is all the beautiful and magnificent ways that God had created her different than me. I mean, now I celebrate those things by God's grace, but not then. I wanted her to be just like me. I failed to see the beauty in our differences. Well, when we reduce someone else in our minds to uh, the most frustrating thing about them, 
what we're doing is we're treating them as less than fully human. And we're, again, we're failing to see the beautiful complexity that they are by God's design. Peter does that. He condescends toward other believers. The next mistake he makes is, was his confidence in his own abilities. Jesus says to the disciples, you will all fall away. Peter says, no, not me. I will never fall away. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to stick with me through thick and thin. You're going to hang with me through all of this stuff. You won't even make it through the night. You will willfully, actively, and aggressively insist that you don't know me. Peter has such an elevated view of his own abilities that he has no idea what he's about to do. The legendary way that he will fail. Finally, Peter is confused about the foundation of the Christian faith. What do I mean by that? Well, not only is Peter impatient here, he has the whole equation turned around. Peter says, I will die for you. What he fails to realize, that's not the foundation of the Christian faith, what he will do. The foundation of the Christian faith is the death that Jesus will endure. So Peter, he's got it twisted. He thinks that that the whole point of the Christian faith is his devotion to Jesus. I will lay down my life for you. He's emphasizing his would-be sacrifice when the Christian faith is about Christ's sacrifice for us. It's not about our devotion to him, but his devotion to us. A devotion and a love and a concern and a mercy that compelled him to surrender his own life. Peter thinks, and we've seen this just about every time he speaks up, that Christianity is about what he will do for Jesus rather than what Christ will do for him. Perhaps the greatest error we can make in our Christian life is to assume that it will be by our doing, our effort, our obedience, our devotion that makes us right with God. Because then, what? We don't need a Savior, do we? This is the most devastating place we can be in. This is where Peter is. So what does God in his good, in his kindness and providence do? He allows Peter to fail massively spectacularly in a legendary way so that from that place of brokenness and weakness Peter will realize the extent of God's grace toward him here's our final point this morning only when we reach the end of our rope will we cling to the rescuing grace of Jesus I said last week that Christianity is for the down and out the weak the failure the loser those who realize they don't deserve, those who realize they can't achieve or do enough. Well, I realized, I knew that when I said this, but I, but I realized that this is not really an easy message to receive because we're all drawn to the overcomer. We're all, there's something about the hero that we love, not those who need the help of others. We're turned off by weakness in others, and we're turned off in the weakness we see in ourselves. Peter is brash, he is bold, he is impatient, but that's not his greatest problem. Peter's greatest problem is his, he has way too much trust in his own ability. Way back in the 4th century, the, the great theologian Augustine of Hippo wrote, Nor do we say this about Peter, because we have pleasure in blaming the first of the apostles, but in looking at him, we learn that no one should place his confidence in human strength. Uh, John Chrysostom, several hundred years later, would summarize Jesus' words to Peter this way. He would say, as if Jesus is talking, What are you saying, Peter, by saying you will not fall away when I said that all will? 
you will learn by experience that your love is of no account unless grace from above is present. And then Chrysostom kind of summarizes from that. From this it is clear that Christ permitted this fall of Peter's because of his concern for him so that he might learn his own weakness. It's only when we get to a place when we absolutely know at the deepest level of our souls that we can never do enough to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. We can never do enough, enough to, obey, to, to obey God's law in every way that we come to a place of desperation. We come to a place where we know that Jesus is our only hope and we cling to Him in faith. It's a lesson that I could stand to learn better. It's a lesson that we all could easily forget. And it's not a lesson that's learned overnight. It's one that takes a lifetime. We will only grow in our faith as we begin to accept our limitations and cry out to Jesus in our weakness. Toward the end of his life, uh, J.I. Packer, reflecting on 90 years of, uh, well, probably 78 to 80 years of walking with the Lord, became a believer at a young age. He said this toward the end of his life, If I could remember each day of my life that the way to grow stronger is to grow weaker, if I would accept that each day's frustrations, obstacles, and accidents are God's ways of making me acknowledge my weakness so that growing stronger might become a possibility for me, if I did not betray myself into relying on myself, my knowledge, my expertise, my position, my skill with words, and so on, so much of the time, what a difference it would make to me. I'm not sure what the work that God wants to do in each individual heart this morning is, but maybe, maybe for some of you, what God wants to do by His Spirit is to encourage you that Jesus is still there for you. He loves you. He's not gone anywhere. Maybe you sinned in a way this morning, this week, or maybe there's something in your past that no, no one knows about, and you tend to believe that Jesus is there some. But he's very close to leaving you once for all. Maybe what God wants you to know this morning is you have a Savior who will never, ever leave you. But when you sin, in fact, continues to pursue you and draw near to you in love and mercy. And maybe for some of you, what the Spirit is impressing on your heart and wants you to know is that even though you've been to church your whole life and you've been faithful for decades, you really are believing in yourself. You are your own functional Savior in that you look at yourself as good enough, faithful enough, obedient enough to actually make it to where God is. And maybe God wants to bring you to a place of weakness this morning where you realize your own brokenness, your own need for a Savior, and you cling to Him in faith. And maybe for some of us, as we think about this and we think about this beautiful, glorious salvation Maybe God wants us to be more active in sharing it with others, more uh, or quicker rather to, to tell others about what God has done in our life and the salvation that he's made available to all who will repent and believe. And let's pray now that the Holy Spirit will do the work that he desires to do and we would have the humility to respond. Father, we, we praise you this morning for your kindness and your mercy, and we want to be quick to confess and I want to be the chief repenter here. There are so many things that captivate our hearts, so many lesser loves that we are inclined to chase after, 
So many things that we get all fired up about, whether it's sports or our kids' sports or food or sex or pleasure or our career or our retirement account or some vacation or whatever it is. And we know that, that those are all, most of those are good things in and of themselves. And yet, so often we have allowed those to become ultimate things. The things that we run to for our pleasure, for our satisfaction, even for our identity. And Father, we ask this morning you would convict us, that you would bring us to a place of repentance, that you would forgive us, and you would allow us to put aside all of those lesser loves and really cling to you, the lover and the savior, the creator and redeemer of our soul. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.